Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss the 2017 Tom Cruise take on The Mummy. Sebastian and I'm here with Jennifer. Hello. We're back to doing a Just the Two of Us podcast. Just the two of us. It's a very intimate <laughs> podcast to discuss this fine film, a film that I'm sure many people have been waiting for us to discuss, and that is the 2017 The Mummy. Everyone's been waiting. Well, you know, Tom Cruise, who is the star of this film, is uh, back on top of things. Top Gun Maverick, which we both saw and enjoyed, is a huge, huge hit. In fact, it's the biggest hit of Tom Cruise's career. Although he's had some big hits, he's never had like a billion dollar movie before. So Top Gun Maverick really is the biggest hit he's ever had because it's approaching a billion even as we speak. But you know what movie didn't make a billion dollars? I have a feeling I know. The Mummy 2017 did not make a billion dollars. This famously was supposed to be the grand kickoff of Universal's Dark Universe, which was going to be a sort of reboot, I guess, of the Universal Monsters. And they were all going to be sort of interconnected. We were going to get The Mummy, which we did... We were also supposed to get a version of Frankenstein with Javier Bardem. Mm -hmm. We were supposed to get a Bride of Frankenstein with Angelina Jolie. They were supposed to do an Invisible Man with Johnny Depp. They later did mm -hmm. do an Invisible Man with Blumhouse without Johnny Depp. But this was supposed to kick off a whole like Marvel universe of universal horror movie icons and this movie did so poorly that none of that happened it seemed like we also would have gotten a dr jekyll and mr hyde because we are introduced to him in this film also that's correct we do get dr jekyll and mr hyde in this movie and boy was i sad today just thinking about re-watching this and you know I did enjoy it when we saw it in the theater, but it brought up the memories of, I was like, oh yeah, remember the dark universe? Mm-hmm. Womp, womp. <laughs> yep. Exactly what I, I was like, oh, we were so close. We were so close. And when you watch this movie, you still see the dark universe logo that they Oof. had made. At the beginning, it just hurts. It's a painful reminder of something that never happened. Yep. I was all for it. I was up for the dark universe. I know you were you were like so up for the dark universe. Are you kidding me? I can't think of anyone else who would have been more up for the dark universe. I'm sure there was plenty of people out there who were up for the dark universe. Well, in my world, you were the, the champion of the dark universe. Well, it never came to be. But they even had like a Vanity Fair cover with all of the stars that were going to be in it or something like that. They were really thinking it was going to happen. And it really, really didn't. So sad. What are you going to do? You know, you try to 
put too many apples before the cart or whatever, whatever the expression <laughs> is, and that can blow up in your face. And that's what happened here. So in many ways, this is kind of the ultimate tentpole trauma because it was supposed to start a whole universe of movies and it didn't. It stars one of the biggest movie stars of all time and it still flopped. I mean, it ended up making about $400 million worldwide on a $125 million budget, although that is debatable. So it didn't technically lose as much money as you might think, but it only made like, I don't know, $30 million in the States, or it did really bad in the States. So everyone was like, nope, not doing that. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like, it doesn't really matter. It tanked the whole idea, no matter you know, what the dollar amounts are, it was the response or the, the critics or whatever, like, it just wasn't going to happen based on this film. The temple trauma is strong with this one. Maybe it's just my taste. And maybe they thought this would be a good idea based on like the Brendan Fraser mummy films or like Tomb Raider or whatever. Yeah. But I wouldn't have led with the mummy to kick off the dark universe. Not only that, but it also took the tact of kind of doing an action horror movie when maybe the thing to do would have been to do a more just straight horror movie. I'm glad you brought up the Brendan Fraser mummies because I actually enjoy those movies. I know you do. I like the first one a lot, actually. This, the next two aren't very good, but they're sort of watchable and fun in a like, mummy meets Indiana Jones type of way. That seemed to be kind of what they were going for yes. again here, but then they're trying to do it a little bit more grounded and serious with Tom Cruise. I don't know. It's kind of a weird approach for sure. The mummies is the least interesting of the Universal Monsters for me. It just is. And I, I mean, I don't want to kick the mummy out of the crew but i i just would have led with somebody else well i mean universals led originally with frankenstein and dracula so it's like why not lead with those guys because those guys would have definitely had more of a chance they were saying that dracula untold was sort of the official first dark universe movie but it wasn't really they were just kind of trying to grandfather that one in after the fact remember when we went to see dracula untold in the theater and it was just you and i i don't remember that it was just <laughs> you and i but i do remember seeing it in the theater i'm pretty sure it was just the two of us in the theater now i was looking at the critical reactions to this and i was a little shocked at how bad the critical reactions are because when we saw this in 2017, I mean, I didn't walk out of the theater thinking I'd witnessed some grand new masterpiece or anything, but I thought it was a serviceably fun action horror movie. And yeah, the critics just hated this. Like this got all sorts of raspberry awards or whatever. Not that I care about any of that crap but it just was apparently really, really lambasted by the critics. I'm surprised to hear that because I also recall when we saw this in the theater that I had a good time and I enjoyed it and I enjoyed rewatching it now. Like yeah. I, it's totally like a, a, a fun watch and goes by really quickly because we had even taken a break so you could get, have a quick bathroom break. And I was surprised that we had already like watched an hour of the film because it, it the pacing's really good. And it doesn't feel like stuff has been cut out of it or anything, which is usually the case when you notice, oh, this movie is actually kind of shorter than I think it's going to be. It's usually because they've cut like 20 minutes out. That's why I was watching the deleted scenes afterwards, because I'm like, did they cut a whole bunch of this movie out? Because it doesn't really feel like that. And no, some scenes were a little bit longer or whatever, but, you know, according to the deleted scenes, there wasn't that much cut out. And we should say, I mean, the movie is still two hours. Like, yeah. I'm just saying, like, the first hour flew by and the second did, too. I mean, like, it's it's just paced really well. I think uh, it, for, for me, who always complains about the length of of action type films also, I felt this was was really well done in that aspect. And. Again, just I'm shocked to hear that it was 
hated so much and the raspberries and all of that like i don't think it's deserving of that at all you know if rodney was listening to this episode he'd probably be screaming at the both of us because we're not cutting it to shreds (laughs) but rodney doesn't listen to any episodes he's not on so (laughs) there's no danger of that happening anyway so we can praise the mummy 2017 to the egyptian gods for all he cares now let's talk a little bit about the development of this movie the director of this movie is Alex Kurtzman and Alex Kurtzman is mostly known for being a very high paid Hollywood writer his partner Roberto Orsi is usually who he's partnered with they've written a ton of huge blockbuster movies including I think they wrote the um, two Star Treks the two J.J. Abrams Star Treks and they've done a ton of ton of stuff roberto orsi unfortunately is a conspiracy theorist oh i think i knew that yeah so he's sort of fallen out of favor a little bit because he's got some pretty boneheaded ideas about things um but alex kurtzman is still pretty active he's involved in the new star trek shows which i'm watching and i enjoy strange new worlds a lot and he's involved in that his writing has been taken to task a lot just because you know when you get to be that big people are always going to kind of take pot shots at you i don't know for sure if this is his first directing gig probably it wasn't but it was definitely his first big blockbuster Mm -hmm. directing gig and this was all you know, earned by all of the money he's made the studios over the years writing giant blockbusters. Now, I looked for Tom Cruise's name in the credits as a producer, and I did not see it. But Tom Cruise is famously always a producer now on everything that he stars in. Like, he's a huge producer of the Mission Impossible movies. He's a huge producer of Top Gun, Maverick, anything he's in. He has a really big hand and he he basically is in charge of anything he's in. And I was reading about it that that was definitely the case here. And so director Alex Kurtzman has some bad feelings about this because he feels like Tom Cruise basically told him what to do the whole time. So even though he's not listed as a producer, as far as I could tell, Tom Cruise apparently had a oversized influence on this film, especially for such an undersized man. <laughs> You couldn't wait to do that. (laughs) You couldn't wait. Um, I mean, it's Tom Cruise. I don't think he can help himself from running the show. Even if he doesn't have a a credit for it as a producer, I could just, I I can't see him just taking direction. No. You know, I'm not trying to put down Tom in that way, but I just, I think that's who he is. How do you feel about Tom Cruise as a star in the modern age? I think he's found where he belongs. I would kind of prefer him, not kind of, I do prefer him, I think, older Tom Cruise action guy, more Mm -hmm. so than, you know, the Tom Cruise that we came up with, like in Risky Business or All the Right Moves or The Outsiders or whatever. Like, I mean, I think he's great in all of those, but I feel like this is just his thing. Like, he's so physical it's just with Mission Impossible and and in this film and just uh, and and Maverick, like I just feel like he really thrives more in the the action roles. Well, there's sort of three Tom Cruise phases if you think about it. There's his initial phase in the early '80s to late '80s where he was becoming a star, and he you know he starts off as sort of a smaller actor, and then he becomes the star of Risky Business, and then he becomes a bankable name and then in the 90s he sort of takes a more dramatic turn he starts doing like jerry Maguire and vanilla sky and he's kind of going for a more serious dramatic role but then later he really leans into the mission impossible movies and becomes a major action star you know based on the fact that he's so willing to risk his own life and perform his own stunts and as you know i am a big fan of the mission impossible movies especially as they go they just seem to get better and better in my opinion the first few are okay but then i really like four through six and i'm excited about the new ones and I mean, I just really enjoy him in those movies just because the stunts and action scenes feel so real and not CG and 
they're just exciting to watch. So I enjoy them and I enjoy seeing him put himself in danger. I do enjoy him. I, I, I love Jerry Maguire. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a great film. And Vanilla Sky and Minority Report. I yeah, mean, there's, you know, but that's kind of getting more into the action there with the Minority Report. Yes. We're kind of heading that direction. I think he can, I think he's capable of doing it all. I like him in Interview with the Vampire as well. You know, there's nothing really he's can't pull off. I just feel like Tom Cruise of later and, uh, you know, present Tom Cruise and the roles that he's choosing, like just feel it just feels right. He sort of stepped away at least from the Scientology controversy stuff. I'm sure he's still involved with them and still heavily involved in the church and everything, but he doesn't talk about it anymore. He sort of keeps it on the down low. You don't hear too much about his involvement with them. So I think that's kind of helped rehabilitate his image because he had that sort of period in 2005 the jumping up on and down couch. the couch and the katie holmes thing that everybody kind of soured on him and i feel like that he sort of had to build himself up a little bit again and that's kind of when he really threw himself into being an action star because the mission impossible franchise was the one thing he could kind of count on and so he was like i'm gonna really make those great and that sort of resuscitated his career, which wasn't dead, but it was definitely hurting after that incident. He became like a joke in a lot of ways, as far as like how he was perceived after his, you know, I love Katie and all yeah. that, you know, and whatever, man. I mean, he's just, he was feeling it, but it's just weird. I would never want to be in that position of no. you know it's just not something that i've ever desired because it's so like that's just what he was feeling at the time but then it really did make people turn like and just yeah. think he was kind of like a meme or a joke or something like that you know with with this whole oprah thing yeah i mean i think he probably learned from that and learned to dial it back however he is feeling he decided to keep things a little more private and just going into what he's doing now, it's just, I don't know. He just, he's, he's so likable. He's really just, he's always been charming, but I like his charm better now as an older person, like an older guy who's doing all this action stuff. Like he really, even in, you know, watching the mummy tonight, like he's got some jokes in there and, and he's just, he's charming. He's allowed himself to be perceived as more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. He's, getting older and while he's still playing the cocky macho guy in some ways he's allowing himself to get hurt on screen in this movie he gets tossed around oh like a rag doll by sophia butella he just plays it off in a way that makes you sort of like him more because before he used to want to present himself as being like invincible right. i mean like mission impossible 2 with the hair when he's like flipping around on the motorcycle it's ridiculous but he learned that okay i can't really look cool like that anymore but if i do all this action and i play it off like i'm getting hurt and you know it's taking it out of me people will actually sympathize with me more and, and that's it's worked out for him it worked really well in maverick as, yes. as well because it was Definitely, you know, he's not the guy, he's not the Maverick from Top Gun. Yeah. You know, he's, he's been through some shit and it's just, you're, yeah, you're really, he's vulnerable. I think you, you nailed it. There's nothing else for me to say there. You're just really wanting to root for him. Well, let's talk about this movie a little bit. Uh, we open up with this news segment where they're explaining that they've discovered this tomb underneath England where... There are all these sarcophaguses of the Knights of Templar, which is going to be sort of awkwardly tied to our Egyptian mythology. I will say this about this movie. I do think the plot kind of works pretty much for what it is, but the sort of sweaty tying together of like the Knights Templar to the Egyptian mythology and then throwing in this Dr. Jekyll's monster hunter verse or whatever, that kind of stuff, the sort of world building they're, they're doing is a little bit clunky. And I think that's kind of the main writing flaw of the movie is it all just doesn't work that great. Well, and I think they're, you know, trying to make it happen and they're trying to make it happen fast. Yes. 
I don't really care. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it didn't, I mean, whatever. I just, it, it's fine. But yes, I agree with you. It's clunky is a good description. You know, and we're introduced to the Russell Crowe as Dr. Jekyll character. He comes in and has some voiceover about evil and monsters or whatever. You know, they're just trying to build their universe really quickly their dark universe they're trying to make it happen really fast and mm -hmm. it's a little sweaty yes sweaty for sure at this point we're getting the backstory filled in as to our mummy character and mm -hmm. you know the big innovation and in mummy dumb this time is we're <laughs> going to have a female mummy which i'm all for yep. i think women can make perfectly good mummies again to your point though I think it's a cool idea to have a female mummy, but was this the thing to lead with, with the monster? I mean, we're leading with the mummy who you rightfully pointed out is not the most popular. And we're doing this kind of new take on the mummy and having the mummy be a woman. You're kind of like taking out all of your iconographic power right there because we're not familiar with this mummy. This isn't like Boris Karloff mummy or anything. It's just, you're kind of starting off in a weird foot. I wonder if anyone's favorite universal monster is the mummy. Jake Schachter. Oh, Jake Schachter. He loves the mummy. Out of everybody? Yes. Wow. He thinks the mummy is the most terrifying. Wow, okay, well, good for Jake. I'm a creature man. The mummy's definitely not my favorite and I don't really love the original Mummy movie with Boris Karloff. I think it's a real snooze. It's 100% a snooze. That's exactly what I was just going to say. It's like boring Dracula. Yes. <laughs> but I do like the cheesy Universal Mummy sequels that they put out uh, after that movie because they give you more of what you'd expect from a Mummy movie. It's like, you know, people going into tombs and mummies attacking them. Like and Abbott and Costello and Meet the Mummy type thing. Right. Yeah. But they had other sequels before that that were just sort of silly horror adventures. The Brendan Fraser movies are kind of in that tradition in a way. We do get our, our backstory of Aminet, our mummy, played by Sophia Butella. I got to say, she is the sexiest mummy that we've ever gotten for sure. Hands down. She is so pretty. Even when she gets all messed up when she you know takes in the the makes the deal with the god of death or the demon or whatever she does I, i'm sure you know exactly what she does mm, it's a little fuzzy <laughs> she's supposedly trying to resurrect the egyptian god of the dead set okay mm -hmm. but you know we learn that she uh, is this princess she was supposed to inherit the kingdom from the pharaoh but then his wife had a male child so now she's going to not get it so she makes a deal with the devil or something and uses this dagger with a gem in it which is going to be our macguffin for the movie kind of a silly macguffin but whatever we'll go with it and she's going to sacrifice her male lover and have set the god of the dead who's not really Satan. In this movie, they try to equate Set to Satan. I think at some point, Russell Crowe, Henry Jekyll is like, well, Set, Satan, they all are the same name or whatever. But it's not true. Set is really the god of the dead. He's not Satan sitting down there scheming of how to make people evil or anything. That's not his deal. Well, it sounds like, again, like the rushed, fevered world building. Yeah. And we're just going to potato, patata, set Satan. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but I, I like all of I like this setup. Yeah. I like what happens. I mean, it's very biblical. Yes. Like, that's what I was thinking. I was like, oh, isn't this like something with Moses and the bulrushes or something? They're going to, I was, you know, where they send them downstream or something. I don't know. I can't really remember. But it just is something very typical of this time as far as, you know, somebody is, is supposed to be inheriting the throne or crown or whatever. And then, you know, things change. And I, and I do appreciate, and they say this in there, it's like, you know, power isn't just handed over or something like that or it's something along the lines of like you have to take it yeah and especially coming from a female perspective because of her gender she's you know she's out because now this male baby's coming in and he's gonna take over and she's you know this is supposed to be her thing and 
even the Egyptians were progressive in a lot of ways, but still not with this. It does also recall the sort of backstory setups that we do see in the Brendan Fraser mummy and the mummy returns. I believe there's a female character in the second Brendan Fraser mummy who has a similar sort of backstory as to the one we see here. It's not exactly the same, but it definitely feels similar to those movies in those moments when we're getting these flashbacks. I mean, you've got to establish your mummy and why they're the mummy. So I get it. But if they're trying to distance themselves radically from the Brendan Fraser movies at this point, they actually seem kind of similar. You would know. I think I've only seen the first of the Brendan Frasers. I did see that one in the theater, but I can't recall any of the rest. So they're pretty forgettable. Well, you're the Brendan Fraser mummy expert on this episode. Well, what's not like the Brendan Fraser mummy is that then we are in modern times and we meet our hero, played by Tom Cruise, and I can't even remember his name. I'm pretty sure it's Nick. Yeah, it's Nick Morton. And it's funny that you say that because I also forgot his name. And the only reason that I figured out what it was was at the end, which we're not doing this in a linear way, so I can jump ahead. Sure, yeah. Um, but at the end, when Jenny is like saying, Nick. Nick, yeah. Nick. And I was like, oh, that's his name. Because I completely spaced on his name. I knew her name. and Because and it's your name. That's right. And Vale, I could remember that too. His partner or whatever, because it was just an interesting name. Yeah. But boy, did I forget Tom Cruise's name. So the setup here is Tom Cruise, a.k.a. Nick Morton, and his buddy Vale, played by Jack... By Jake Johnson, not, not Jack Johnson. Not Jack Johnson. That's a different guy. <laughs> they are army dudes who are also treasure hunters. So they're like reconnaissance guys. So they're supposed to like go ahead and scope out what's going on. But really they're using this as an opportunity to treasure hunt. And they've scoped out this area in Iraq where they think there's going to be some sort of treasure. And this is a little bit confusing because Tom Cruise has a piece of paper mm -hmm. from Henry Jekyll. Is mm -hmm. that what did he steal that yes. from Jenny? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So he had a rendezvous with Jenny the night before. And this is why she's so upset because yes. not only did he like just bail in the morning he also stole this directions from Henry Jekyll to it's a to Jennifer telling them where to go. And it's yeah. So Tom Cruise totally lifted that from her. And Jenny is played by Annabelle Wallace, who is a British actor. Do you recognize her from a movie we've seen recently that we enjoyed? I was trying to think. I really enjoyed seeing her again in this. I remember her from previously from when we saw The Mummy. Was she in the Downton Abbey? No, she is the star of Malignant. <gasps> yes. James Wan yes. horror yes. film. Yes, that yes, came out yes, last yes, year. yes. She is. Yes. Okay. Well, that's great. I, yeah, I, I totally forgot like that she was in that. I do really like her. I think she's got a great presence. Yeah, she's got a good presence, and she's very pretty. But the setup here is that Nick and Vale are trying to find where this treasure is, and they run afoul of insurgents and they call in an airstrike and during the airstrike a big hole is blown in the ground and inadvertently a tomb is revealed and that's when Courtney B. Vance shows up as their sergeant who's pissed off because he's figured out what they're doing and then Jenny shows up and she's pissed off because she had a night of passion with Nick, although she doesn't describe it as being very passionate. She says he lasted 30 seconds. 15 seconds. Oh, that's even worse. Yeah. That's really shameful. Mm -hmm. And boy, is he not happy about that later on. He's like, why did you have to say 15 seconds? <laughs> there's, I mean, there's some, there's some humor in this. I can tell now that you've mentioned that this was the team involved with some of the J.J. Abrams Star Trek. Yeah. It makes sense because they put in just enough humor in these things that are, it's, you know, I actually like, you know, do some chuckling out loud at some of the lines. Yeah, it's it's got some zazz to it. It's got a little zip there. A little, a little sass. I mean, it's sort of an interesting setup that our love interest and the lead have already sort of had their dalliance. And this is actually kind of like a 
after mm-hmm. that sort of situation. I don't know if it works that well, but it's at least different. It's not the same old thing. Oh, I think it works. I actually, I actually like this. Okay. I, I like that he's having to deal with the consequences of his poor behavior, hooking up with her and splitting and also stealing from her. Yeah. I, I didn't need to see the actual romance that happened or how he charmed her or whatever because i can see he's charming i can see he can turn on the charm when he wants to and it sets up this idea that he's kind of a scoundrel or not really a very nice guy i mean he sees himself as being kind of a decent guy but he kind of isn't and that's going to be sort of the character arc that he has is becoming less selfish and you know doing something for someone other than himself Anyway, we get into our first uh, mummy tomb. Uh, they come down into the hole, and there's a big uh, statue down there, and they find a pool of mercury because, for whatever reason, mercury is used to keep the evil spirit in the sarcophagus. And then we see the sarcophagus, which is kind of comically H.R. Gigerish, like. It does not look like your typical Egyptian sarcophagus. It looks way more sinister and like almost biomechanical. Yeah, but I'm kind of here for it because this whole story, as we learn later, has been like stricken from history. Yeah. It kind of works that it's this weird sarcophagus and this way like it's so like swept under the rug type thing that I, I can buy that it doesn't match what a typical Egyptian burial setup would be. Another thing that sort of recalls the Brendan Fraser uh, mummy movies is while they're down there, all these bugs sort of swarm out. That's what I recall from the Brendan Fraser mummy movie that I saw is like, there's a lot of sort of, are they scarabs? They're scarabs in that movie. In this one, they're camel spiders. Okay. And later we're going to get a like dust cloud attack and that is definitely from the brendan fraser movie that was one of the things that was like on the trailer and the poster like a sand cloud that has a face in it and we get that later in the movie so i don't know if they're referencing the brendan fraser movie that way maybe they are but it's weird that there are these kind of callbacks to the brendan fraser movie but yeah these camel spiders come out of the you know nooks and crannies of the tomb and Jake Johnson gets bitten by one and like Tom Cruise is like, oh, who cares? They're not even poisonous. However, that is going to turn him into a murderous zombie or something later. I was thinking as I was watching this and I was like, oh, you know why you don't really care so much about the mummy is because it's kind of similar to zombies, which I also don't really care about unless we're talking George Romero films. But it's kind of like a similar thing, or at least it is in this film. Yeah, and it's become like that, like this idea that we have our main mummy and then our main mummy will sort of create Mm -hmm, more minions and they're kind of more corpsey zombie Mm -hmm. type of things. But that's not how it originally was conceived. And originally it was conceived much more like Bram Stoker's Dracula, the movie, where the mummy is in love with this Egyptian princess and she's been resurrected throughout time and he is uncovered by archaeologists and then he kills them and then he becomes like this handsome Egyptian Mm -hmm. prince. So it's not really baked into the cake that that's what mummies do. That's just sort of something that like more recent versions of the mummy have done. No. And I think that's because of the popularity of zombies and walking dead and things like that. It's, you know, it's everywhere. Well, you want your army of drones and I guess that works just as good as any. So they find the sarcophagus, which is going to be really valuable. So they decide to take it back to England. I'm not exactly sure how this is worked out. I don't remember like why they they take this back. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming maybe they were taking it back to Henry Jekyll's place. Yes. I mean, I guess that was the idea. I don't know how she was able to convince the army to take that back for her. Yeah, that's but what it just I'm happens. About. Like, I mean, it's it's just like all of a sudden there things start going down in this hole, like not like shit starts getting weird. And so they have to bail and they like 
I just remember cut to they're like in the plane with the sarcophagus. Well, like Tom Cruise <laughs> shoots this like lover pulley right. thing. Well, and everything starts. It's like a mousetrap. You know, right. every, everything starts. It's going off. And you can tell already that uh, Jake Johnson, also known as Vale, something's not right. Like he's starting to feel bad. But the other two haven't noticed this about him yet. Yeah. So they get out of this and they're on the plane. And it's like, an, you know, an army plane where the doors are open and and whatnot and he starts to like really freak out like we see like his one eye roll back it's got like that dead looking eye yeah and uh he starts stabbing courtney b vance courtney b vance is taken out of the movie really quickly Real fast yeah he just sort of stabs him with this knife or whatever and then he starts going after the rest of the people in the hangar including tom cruise And it's kind of funny because he's sort of slowly coming at them with a knife. And eventually Tom Cruise has to shoot him a bunch of times, which is, you know, sad because they're buddies. But he has been turned into a murder zombie. So what are you going to do? Yeah. And interesting, like you said, he's not he's moving like slowly. But then as we go on later, we get faster zombies. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Jake Johnson role in this, because it's so reminiscent of one of the greatest horror comedies of all time american werewolf in london clearly this character is going to come back but not as a murder zombie more as just like a vision that keeps prompting the nick character to go find the mummy or whatever and it is so directly lifted from the jack character in american werewolf in london and not nearly as successfully done as griffin done in that movie with his half rotting face and everything nicely done it's clearly where they get the idea and it's fine i i don't hate it i just it's it's just clearly that's what they're doing and it's okay i don't hate it but it does seem sort of pointless because in american werewolf in london he's trying to get uh, David, the protagonist, to kill himself before he becomes a werewolf right. and kills a bunch of people. In this, we don't really know what he's doing at first, but really he's just trying to get Nick to go and do what the mummy wants yes. him to do, which is become this god of e- evil or yes. whatever. So he's just her emissary or yes. something. So, I mean, he's fulfilling a different role, but it's sort of unsatisfying when we find out what he's really doing. And not really necessary because Nick's not really listening to him. Yeah. He's wanting him to go away. And, you know, I mean, which is happening in American Werewolf in London, too. But it's a, a different thing. It's not really needed. No. But I don't hate it. Plus, he's not as sort of gruesome as no. Griffin Dunn in American no. Werewolf in London, no. which is part of the fun. Is it is, because he's Dunn. just like part of the Dunn fun. Yeah. Griffin Dunn is gross and decaying and getting grosser as we go along and, yeah. you know, that, that whole thing. We did fail to mention, because I do think it's this is worth mentioning, when Tom Cruise has to shoot Vale on the plane and the plane starts to crash and he gives Jenny seemingly what is the only parachute and then we cut to jenny at this facility where they're saying could you come identify the bodies and it's assumed that everyone died in the crash and we get tom cruise in like the coroner's area or whatever it is there i don't know it's like it looks kind of like they're in some sort of castle or something too so i don't really know what they are but it's bodies everywhere and busts out of the body bag yeah because uh, he's not really dead. I and mean, we get naked Tom Cruise. We do, but we don't get to see the goods. I want to talk a little bit, though, about the plane crash. I thought you wanted to talk a little bit about naked Tom Cruise. Well, we can talk about that, too, <laughs> if you want. We, you get some buns. You get some Tom Cruise buns. So the plane crash whole sequence was heavily featured in the trailer. And it's got some pretty cool moments. What happens is this, like, flock of ravens oh, or something, right. like, flies and into the plane and like kills the pilots and gets in the engine well it's part of Aminette's thing yeah. like she sends those they're, they're definitely it wasn't just a flock of birds they flew into like these no were, these were murder birds we can cover that with one blanket statement everything that sounds crazy that's happening in this movie is because of Aminette and yes. her mummy power okay there we go done every time you hear us say something that you're like what it's because of her so 
this whole sequence was originally supposed to be just like shot, you know, like they would normally do with people on wires and stuff. But like because Tom Cruise is Tom Cruise, he insisted on them using the actual like centrifugal training devices that they use for pilots and astronauts where they like spin you around and they actually create zero G in real life yeah no i've i've been in one of something similar to that at kenny space center of course you have <laughs> but anyway yeah so they had to kind of do it for real so there's a few shots that you'll notice in the movie where tom cruise and annabelle wallace are like flying around and i noticed it because i was like oh that looks really good they don't look like they're on wires because they're not because they put the set in one of those things and spun them around really fast so that they were literally experiencing zero, zero g wow because tom cruise insists on we're that gonna sort make of this realism. legit i'm surprised he didn't make them all endure a real plane crash while they were at it <laughs> but the plane crash is pretty cool and as somebody who is terrified of being in a plane crash there's some moments that get pretty effective like when he's plastered up against the side of the wall by the door and he's saved her by giving her a parachute and pulling the cord on it so she goes flying out you know she thanks him for that later and he's like i thought there was another parachute <laughs> because he's selfish yes like i mean he still did look he did a good thing by giving her that but she's like you gave me the only parachute and you, there weren't any others left and he's like i thought there was another one i do appreciate that shot though where he's plastered up against the door and you see the ground coming and everything and but yeah, he survives magically because of Amonet's power and uh, wakes up in the morgue. Now, from here, we get a sequence where he feels compelled to go find the mummy. Meanwhile, the mummy's sarcophagus has landed in some, like, crypty-type looking place out in the English countryside. It's unclear. <laughs> And she has caught out of her sarcophagus and, like, is attacking, like, cops who are, like, searching the area, looking for survivors or bodies or whatever. And she's, like, sucking the life out of them. She's doing some sleepwalker business here. This is true, yes. This is what I was thinking. I was like, this is, like, sleepwalkers. She's totally, like, sucking the life out of everybody. Yeah, I mean, it's not bad in terms no. of, like, creepiness and... Once she sucked the life out of them, then she sort of like, you know, snaps her fingers or something and like reanimates their bodies to be her minions. And some of the like movement that they're making as they sort of like reconstitute themselves or whatever is pretty creepy. It's totally creepy. And I, I like seeing her come back to her beautiful self. Yeah. Because, you know, she'd like been mummified and part of her nose was missing and everything. And it's like with every breath she takes. Mm. She's just getting more and more back to her beautiful self, even with like all these like weird, uh, you know, tattoos and stuff all over her face as to what when she became evil. She's still beautiful evil. I really like the way Sophia Butella moves in this. I think she was a dancer. I think that's her original claim to fame. I would believe that. The first movie I remember seeing her in was the Kingsman movie. Mm -hmm. Which I don't think you ever saw, but... I think you watched it at home. Yeah, I own it. And uh, in that movie, it's great. She plays this character who has, like, swords for legs. <laughs> then she was in Star Trek Beyond, which you have seen. Mm -hmm. She was, like, an alien in that. And she's in Atomic Blonde. Yes, that's where I remember her most from. Yeah, so she's been in a bunch of movies that didn't do that great. So I kind of feel like she hasn't gotten a chance to totally break out the way she could because she's very exotic looking, which is really cool. And she's really got a physicality to her. I think she's a fine actress. I think she delivers her lines well. I mean, in this movie, she's playing a monster. So she's just, you know, being otherworldly and scary, scary and walking around. I do love the double irises that she gets in the movie. I think that's a cool design element. I remember us liking that when we saw this the first time as well. Like her, the double irises were something that we talked about afterwards. And I was really enjoying that again today too. I, I think like, I mean, I know, you know, there's plenty of CG going on here as well, but it's well done. There is a lot of CG and you know, some people really don't like CG in their horror movies, which I understand. But in this case, it all works. I think it looks pretty cool. I think the design elements are pretty cool. I think she makes a really effective 
cool villainous. I think it just comes down to the fact that this isn't an iconic version of the mummy. And this is your first dark universe movie. I just think it was a misstep to go this direction this soon. Like this would be great for like the third dark universe movie, you know, but starting off with this, with this weird reinterpretation of the character, I just think was unwise. I think so too. And I'm wondering if it was because there hadn't really been, I mean, we've referenced the Brendan Fraser mummy films, but there hadn't really been another mummy film. Like there had been Bram Stoker's Dracula, you know, that Francis Ford Coppola did, or even the Wolfman that we covered on this podcast before as well with Benicio del Toro. Like there had been more kind of grand big budget yeah. attempts with other universal monsters. And maybe they thought, well, let's try the mummy this time because you know, even though those weren't part of the dark universe, but you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm just wondering if that was maybe the thought behind it. Yeah, I think it was more a confluence of things where they had Tom Cruise involved and they were just thinking that the mummy was now more of an action kind of thing because of the Brendan Fraser movies. So they were thinking, well, we've got Tom Cruise, he's an action guy and we've got the mummy and that's more of an action horror thing. So let's do that. It just wasn't the right move for the first movie in this. Yeah, you don't lead off with this. Anyway, so Tom Cruise goes back to try to meet up with the mummy because he's compelled to, and Annabelle Wallace is trying to get him not to do it. There's a scene where they're in a bar and he's drinking and she's trying to explain to him what's going on. We're sort of getting the picture that she's more heavily involved in some sort of clandestine supernatural organization, but she's not showing all her cards yet. And then he goes into the bathroom and we get the scene with Jake Johnson in the mirror. But yeah, I do sort of enjoy this little part of the movie where they go to this church or wherever it is that the sarcophagus is landed in and she comes out and sort of chases them around and they try to get away in a van. And Annabelle Wallace is like, she's in your head. And Tom Cruise is like, she's not in my head. And then they realize they've driven right back to the church or whatever. And he says, she's in my head. because <laughs> He knows that, yeah, he can't like she's totally running the show. And they end up crashing the van. And there's a cool scene in the woods, which was featured in the trailer where you see her sort of coming through the foggy woods, which I like a lot. And Tom Cruise like picks up a piece of wood or something. And Annabelle Wallace is like, go kick her ass. But the mummy completely kicks his ass, which oh, is funny. Yeah, she like throws him all over the place. It's a fun little sequence of scenes of action that I think works perfectly well and is perfectly enjoyable. And this is then also where um, the mummy is captured. A bunch of tactical people come out and like use all these kind of hooks type things that are shot into her to like hold her in a certain place. Yeah, they're like harpoons with chains on them. Yeah, and so then we get to go to Henry Jekyll's place. Yes, the Prodigium or something like that. It's a secret lair in London where we're going to meet this organization that captures monsters or something and we get a cool little scene where nick aka tom cruise is being led through these hallways he comes into this room where they've got all these like jars full of formaldehyde and we we notice the creature's claw in one of those yep. jaws of formaldehyde he passes by a skull that's clearly a vampire at one point so they're sort of seeding the dark universe in this scene that, oh, there's other monsters out there. I really liked that. And then we get into talking more with Henry, who then starts to Jekyll out. Let's talk a little <laughs> bit about Russell Crowe in this movie. Now, I am a big crow head. I love me some Russell Crowe. I don't care if he's skinny or fat. You just give me that crow. I love the guy and everything. And uh, I like him here as Henry Jekyll. You know, I'm a fan, too. I'm, I'm always down for some crow, and I think he's great. I would have loved to see more of him as Henry Jekyll. He's fun because as Henry Jekyll, he's very sort of erudite and properly British sounding. And then we slowly see him start to transform into Mr. Hyde. And once he starts becoming Mr. Hyde, he starts talking in Cockney and yeah. stuff. And the twist on it, which is fun, is that in the story, he takes a serum and becomes Mr. Hyde. 
But in this, he has to take a serum not to become right. him. Like he's automatically going to just start turning into yes. Mr. Hyde. But he's got to have this like crazy three-pronged syringe that yep. he puts into his hand and injects himself with it to sort of calm back down. One could argue that this sort of world building gets in the way of the story. It does seem to kind of like slow everything down because they're trying to do two things at once here. They're trying to set up the whole monster verse with Dr. Jekyll, but then they're also trying to do like the villain has been taken prisoner, but is going to get out. Right. You know, like we saw in the dark Knight with the Joker, they were doing that a lot for like 10 years. There's always a scene in the movie where they've got the villain in the prison, but the villain gets out like in, they did that in star Trek into darkness mm -hmm. with Khan and everything. They've done it in a bunch of movies. Right. But it, I mean, it works for this because, you know, we've established that Jenny is super archaeologist gal and she is so well versed in all this e Egyptian history and can read hieroglyphics and everything. And all she can think is because Russell Crowe is as um, Dr. Jekyll is like, well, now we're going to dissect her and study her. Yeah. And she, Jenny's like, no, like we need to talk to her. Like she's got, a, there's a whole like history that's been erased here. Like we need to know. And she tries to talk to her and just in true villain form, she's, you know, yeah, you'll, you you want to know about the God of death. Well, you're going to meet him soon or whatever, <laughs> you know, like all of that. And she's like, oh, you want to know the answer is what it's like beyond the veil yes. of death. Well, you'll find out soon enough. Right. Which right. the character does find out in the end. Yes, she does. But she gets brought back. Spoiler. But she does die. She comes back. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the daggers being brought in here too, like in the scene in the church crypt or whatever, the mummy's got Tom Cruise down on like a slab and punches this statue and the daggers magically in there. And then we're going to find out that you need the gem for the dagger. Right. And that's in one of the somewhere else crypts of the yeah. Templars. <laughs> it's a lot of silly MacGuffin-y shit. Yeah, but that's like, this is what mummy movies do. Like, you have to go on a chase. This is what every movie does I now. know, I know. But I mean, as far as like, well, we've got this, but now we have to go get this. And it's like, as far as, it, you know, the adventure of it and, and also the world building and trying to tie it together. Like, oh, this is why this is relevant. I've been thinking about MacGuffins lately, <laughs> and I do understand the purpose they serve because they get things moving you know right. like you've got to go here and get this and otherwise you know you run the risk of everybody just kind of standing around in the same place a macguffin allows your characters to have something they have to go after to get but it's just so obviously macguffiny in this movie there's multiple macguffins well there's two but you have to combine them into one right. for it to work right. it's basically what it is Yes, it is one item, but she pulls out one, like you said, breaks it from a statue and knows exactly where it is. It's going to stab Nick, but she can't because the jewel is missing. Yes. So now we got to go find the jewel. So now we're on that mission. We do get a fun scene where Nick gets locked in the room with Dr. Jekyll yeah. and he has to sort of like fight him off as he's turning. And Mr. Hyde is like, you know, you and me could rule the world with evil together. Dr. Jekyll was trying to give himself the syringe before this happened, but he was coming up with a plan where Nick was going to have to sacrifice himself. Yeah. And Nick was like, no, 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 we're not doing that. And so he takes the syringe to like have something to bargain with. And then shit gets unhinged and, you know, the people that work for Dr. Jekyll or whatever are like clearing out, putting down the doors like you don't want to be in there for this. And yeah, it gets it gets messy. And, and then Nick ends up having to like stab him in the chest with it. But then he's like goes back to he goes from Mr. Hyde back to Dr. Jekyll and is like, thank you. Now, help me out a little bit with this. This is something I'm kind of now a little fuzzy on, even though we just watched mm -hmm. the movie. How does the mummy break free again? She does something where she, there's a, uh, I don't know if it's a, is this maybe a scarab this time, or there's some sort of beetle that's crawling across the floor that's during right, all of this. Yes. And then somebody who works 
and like the control center, it crawls into his ear. That's right. right. Yeah. She possesses somebody yeah. via a scarab in the control room and they yeah. do something. Yeah. And, and that's how she gets out. You know, and there's this scene where Nick and her are sort of face to face and she starts talking to him in Egyptian and then she. And he responds in Egyptian. Right. And then it becomes English. I think we're to assume they're still talking in Egyptian to each other, but mm -hmm. we're just hearing it in English and she's talking about how she's going to make him a living god living god That's or the whatever whole running thing the whole time is yes a living god they're setting up this idea that she's going to turn him into something supernatural mm -hmm. which is going to be important for the end of the movie yes but yeah she breaks free and that's when we get shit going crazy with like uh display cases exploding and we get the sand right. storm with the face in it and the all sand that storm is pretty great by the way because we're getting like london and i know this is all super cg but um you get like double decker buses like flying down at them and and there's tom cruise and and or nick and jenny are trying to like pull he's trying to pull her across the street and here comes this double decker bus so he has to push her out of the way and then like he goes flying through the bus and i don't know it's just i think it's fun yeah and it doesn't ever get too much no it's just enough. enough action that it's enjoyable to watch but it doesn't overdo things i mean there's a lot of cg like you said but it's never overwhelming no I think it's actually a little restrained for this kind of blockbuster movie. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed this part. So, yeah, but then after that, things just kind of get, you know, run from one place to another. I do like at one point they end up underwater in these flooded tunnels. The underwater scene I remembered from last time, and I remembered we loved it so much last time. This is one of the best scenes in the movie, I think. I agree. I mean, I always love a scene that's shot underwater. I like it in Alien Resurrection when they're being chased by the aliens underwater that reminded me a little bit of that scene however you can tell they really flooded something and tom cruise is really swimming through water it's not being faked they do a thing now with cg called um dry for wet like you know aquaman mm -hmm. those characters aren't really underwater sure. they're just hanging on wires and they make their hair look like it's flowing because cg or whatever but nobody's really underwater. You can tell Tom Cruise is really fucking underwater in a giant tank that they've made to look like an underground tunnel. And he's swimming through it and there's like mummy zombies chasing after him. Well, there's all these crypts that are opening up too. Yeah. So it's 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 just awesome. Like there's all these creepy mummies and, and bodies coming up and it's just it's it's really well done. I really love floating corpses that become animated underwater. Uh, have you ever seen Inferno, the Dario Argento movie? I, yeah, I'm pretty sure I've seen that. But I was also thinking of more recently was I think that was in One of the Dead. Oh, right. There yeah. was a really good scene where they are coming out there. I think it takes place in Cuba or something, if I yes. remember correctly. And they, they like the whole army is coming out. But yeah, I'm a fan. It makes me now I want to rewatch Inferno because I haven't seen that. In a long time. It's not a great movie, but there's a really yeah. good underwater, like a, a part of the apartment building has been flooded in the basement and she's got to dive in to get like a jewel and this corpse comes after her. It's good. Yeah. Sort of similar to this. But yeah, I, I enjoyed this underwater sequence. But then they just sort of end up in this tomb somewhere and it's where the Knights Templars are. And she finds the jewel to put in the knife and resurrects the Knight Templar. But then once she has like Tom Cruise and Annabelle Wallace, she just makes all of her Knights Templars like disintegrate or whatever. It's like a real waste. Yeah. Like, why bother animating them if you're just going to disintegrate them? You can't really question the actions of the evil mummy. I'm sort of a two minds about this climax just because on one hand it's kind of underwhelming because we've kind of had our big CG thing with everything blowing up in the yeah. city. But now we're just kind of having this like one-on-one -on -one fight between Tom Cruise and uh, Sophia Botella. The Annabelle Wallace character has like drowned quote unquote mm -hmm. under the water and so tom cruise is sad because you know she's dead and you know there's just this fight going on between him and the mummy and ultimately he's going to try to smash the gem on the knife because that will then stop it from working but then he realizes if he stabs himself and makes himself into a monster he can defeat her 
I don't know. This is all kind of messy right here. <laughs> like, I wasn't sure exactly what was going on. I think, didn't he still, he did stab himself, but I think he still did crush the jewel. Didn't the jewel get no, crushed? No, he stabs himself and then he drops the knife and the jewel automatically it just breaks. breaks. Okay. I'm like, because he did try to crush it first, then he stabs himself and then he drops it and then it shatters. Yes. Once okay. it's done what it needs to do, it just sort of shatters. And then whatever. he goes and sucks the life out of the mummy. Yes. And she's like back to being mummified. A desiccated corpse, yes. Yes. And then he goes and breathes life back into Jenny, right? That's right, yes. Yeah, and then, but boy, before he does that, this is the one thing where I was like, this CG was, you know, I don't like this. This is like the face that he had. He had like the Jennifer's body face for right, a minute. Yeah, he's got like sharp teeth Yeah, and stuff. where he just, I, I get that he's supposed to be a monster, but I'm like, what the hell are you? Like, right. where did this come from? That is definitely annoying they're, what they're trying to do is establish tom cruise as this like monster hero or something that's going to be going through other movies as some kind of thing but we never learn what he is like what monster is he no i even asked you because i thought like well this must be something nerdy that you'll know and i was nope. like so what monster is he supposed to be and you were like We'll never know. And I'm like, yeah, because he doesn't exist in any other folklore anywhere. And it just would have been this made up monster character that was going to float around the dark universe, I guess. I feel like they just hadn't committed to a monster. So they were like, eh, let's just leave it for the next movie and figure out what monster he is. And then like, is he a vampire? Is he a werewolf? Who knows? Like, he's just a something. Yeah. And we only see his face like right before he saves jenny i think like we see like or right after he does or something we see his face briefly like it's just a flash of like the weird teeth and everything yes. and then the rest he's like hunched over and you know like skulking around like you know in the shadows and the shadows yeah. go away or whatever don't look at me or all that stuff you know so we don't really get a clear look at him and we never will no we'll never know what it is if i was in an interviewer i would ask tom cruise point blank i'd be like Please, can you just tell me <laughs> what the deal was with your character in The Mummy? Like, what were you supposed to be? Because, you know, Annabelle Wallace goes back to Henry Jekyll and, you know, there's the whole denouement where they're like, well, where is he now? They're trying to do like The Dark Knight, the right. end of The Dark Knight when Gary Oldman is like narrating as we see Batman like drive away like, he's going to be the silent protector, mm -hmm. the dark knight. Only instead, we're just getting Russell Crowe talking to Annabelle Wallace. And then over that, we're seeing Tom Cruise in like a turban yes. with his face covered yes. out in the desert yes. on a horse. And Jake Johnson has been resurrected somehow, somehow yeah. by his magic monster power, I guess. Yeah. And they're going to go off and have adventures or whatever, because Tom Cruise is like, where's your sense of adventure? Where's your sense of adventure? Right. The end. Yeah. <laughs> and that's pretty much it. Like they're just, it's a beautiful scene. Annie really liked it because of the horses yes. galloping across this desert with all these clouds of uh, sand and dust gathering. And yeah, that, that's it. <laughs> yep, we'll never know what was intended from that. Nope. Well, all right. Why don't we just get to the final question then? Why do you think this failed? I, I mean, I think we talked about it earlier. I think it, I honestly really feel that it failed because they shouldn't have led with the mummy. I don't dislike what they did with what they had. And I, I, I love the female mummy and I, I like all the performances and I think that the pacing's good. I think the CG's good. I just, it's too much action and not a whole lot of horror. And it's the mummy. And it doesn't seem like it was the strongest choice. Definitely agree there, as uh, stated. My friend Jake, who's the big mummy fan, really feels that Tom Cruise ruins this movie. Oh, Jake. I don't agree with him. No. I think as far as a Tom Cruise vehicle goes, it's okay. I think the problem is... Do people want a Tom Cruise mummy movie? I think the answer is a resounding no. I think Tom Cruise, like you said, has found his lane, and I don't think this is it. It's just not really the right fit for him because, you know, you're going to be making these movies that have a lot of special effects and everything, and it's like he's more of a guy that you want to put in a grounded 
real world action movie because he's going to do real stunts in that, you know, like what does it matter if you're doing real stunts when you've got like a CGI monster running around? Like that's not real. So it's kind of like two great tastes that don't taste great together. Even if they were going to go this direction and do like action horror, they should have just gotten somebody else who would just be not as expensive and, you know, like a Brendan Fraser or something like they put the apple before the cart with, you know, trying to make the mummy the first one out of the gate. They should have gone back to the basics. They should have done Dracula or Frankenstein, done something really solid, really good. Don't worry about it. Trying to make it a hundred million dollar action movie. Just make a freaking kick ass universal monster movie like do Frankenstein and give me a square-headed Frankenstein with the <laughs> neck bolts, God damn it! Like, if I have to see another goddamn version of Frankenstein that doesn't have the square head or the neck bolts, the whole point is that Universal owns the rights to that look, so give me a goddamn square-headed Frankenstein with neck bolts, God damn it! <laughs> like, when I heard it was going to be Javier Bardem, I was like, there you go! Like, can you imagine how great he looked neck? with the bolts in that neck and in the square head on that head well the only other standout for that you know would have been who i've always said who have i always said from superman that's right michael shannon michael ever since i saw him i was like he is frankenstein's monster born to play frankenstein to play yeah they're never gonna give me a goddamn (laughs) square-headed frankenstein with neck bolts it's just that they're never gonna do it and they're the only ones that have the rights to do it and now it's gone now that it's just all gone away no Frankenstein with neck bolts. I want a bride of Frankenstein with a crazy hairdo and the things. Angelina Jolie could have rocked that. She would look amazing. I mean, Maleficent is already halfway yeah, there. No, just a little bit higher hair. And like Johnny Depp is an invisible man with the wrapping and the hat. I mean, he loves his scarves and, and his, his hats. hats. He was born to play that role. I mean, I know he was persona non grata around the time they were going to do it. But I just had a vision in my mind of these A-listers playing these characters. And I was like, oh, man, get Angelina in that wig with the lightning bolt hairdo. Give me Javier Bardem with the neck bolts. Give me Doug Jones as the creature from the Black Lagoon with Scarlett Johansson as the bathing Bathing beauty. beauty. Who who we could have had as the Wolfman? Well, we already had Benicio Del Toro. He's an amazing Wolfman. He was a good Wolfman. We get Ryan Gosling. I hear Ryan Gosling's being the new Wolfman. He could be a good Wolfman. Sure, yeah. I'm down. I'm down for a Gosling wolf. (sighs) Well, I mean, the Universal Monsters aren't dead forever. That Invisible Man. Blumhouse did well, right? They did well with that, even though it really doesn't at all resemble the original Invisible Man story. It does give hope for maybe we will get some kind of version of the Universal Monsters in the future. But I think it's probably not going to happen the way I want it to. We'll see. I hope you get some neck bolts and a square head. All right. Well, I'm going to go get a dagger and then I'm going to go stab myself and become a monster that you don't even know what I am. Sounds good, honey. That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon.